This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you ever wish that you had more time in your day? What would you do with an extra hour all to yourself? Would you go for a run? Take a nap? Read a book? The possibilities are endless. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, deal with overthinking, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash heartwisdom today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash heartwisdom. You can take care of the whole past and future in only one place, just now, in the present moment. And if you actually live in the present moment, moment to moment, in this timeless present, you take care of all of the past and all of the future. Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Jack. I want to talk about a variety of things beginning with the cycle of return. When I returned from Asia, sabbatical with my family this year, after about five months, I was struck by how complex and speedy and rich and crazy our culture is. Long ago, when I lived in the forest monastery of Asia, one of the most wonderful things that we would do as monks would be to go out in the mornings with begging bowls and walk just at dawn before the sun rose three miles or five miles or ten miles to some nearby village barefoot through the rice paddies on those little dikes that are between the rice paddies over the fields. And then people would wait in the streets of the villages very respectfully and offer food to us in silence. I stayed at one period in a very poor monastery up in the mountains near the border of Laos, a cave monastery with my teacher, Ajahn Chah. And I remember walking down to villages in the dry season when there wasn't much to eat. And a few monks would go into each of the villages in different directions. And people would come out who were very poor in the dry season. Then it was still, this was 20 or 25 years ago. Um, There wasn't much development. There weren't cars and motorcycles and TVs and the streets were dirt and earthen. And the work was done by water buffalo and oxen. 
And it felt like ancient times, like 2,000 years ago. And people would wait and they would give food to us as monks. And we couldn't answer. We just walked by in silence. You don't say thank you for that. You just receive it in silence with a bit of metta in your heart and you go back. And these people were so poor in this area that they ate anything. They made curries out of field mice and bats and different kinds of insects just to get protein and um, fat and things like that in the diet along with rice. And here I was, a relatively rich American. I had very little money, it's true. But if I were sick or really needed it, I could have wired home and someone would have come up with $500 or $1,000 if I were desperate, which would have been the extra money for a whole family there for 10 years of labor or something like that, or more, 20 years. Unthinkable amount of money. And yet here I was taking their food. And the only way to possibly repay them was through my own practice. It's as if they were saying, we so value the spiritual life that we'll give even of this very little that we have to you to make that flower in the world. And the only way then that can be repaid is through one's own heart and sincerity. What a wonderful time it was to walk everywhere, to live with that kind of simplicity. I met a woman who runs the Ladakh Project, which is an area of India on the border of Tibet, filled with Tibetans, still where the temples and religions are practiced. It wasn't destroyed as it was under the Chinese in the Chinese side of Tibet. And she said, it's very difficult there now. When I first went to Ladakh 20 years ago, I met people and they were happy. And I would talk about life with them and they'd say, we are so rich, we are so blessed. We have land to grow enough barley. We have beautiful temples and lamas. We have cloth to weave from the yaks and sheep. And they were really happy. She's gone back every year for 20 years. She said, now when I go back, there have been a lot of tourists with their wristwatches and cameras and down jackets and climbing gear and all of this. And she said, now when I ask the people how they are, they're still smiley and happy as a culture, but they say, oh, we are very poor. We have nothing. We have none of these things. And in that short time, of 20 years, they've gone from thinking of themselves as rich to thinking of themselves as poor. It's a complicated time for the world, isn't it? So many contradictions. We come back or leave the retreat and go back to our lives and there are all these models of success. Joseph Campbell said, you climb the ladder only to discover it was against the wrong wall. <laughs> Here we are at this retreat, and there's contradictions. 
When you sit, there's grief and fear. And people face their addictions and their depression and the kind of inner war and judgment that we see so much in the outer world, right in ourselves. And then other moments or hours, there's tremendous joy and great compassion and the sense of spaciousness or the sacred or that which is perfect or beautiful. When you leave here, it will be the same. You will see the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. You'll see the suffering more clearly because your eyes and your heart are open more. You walk down the street and it's just there in our cities and it's there in our culture. And you also see the sky and the beautiful things of life. We get flooded in our culture, in our time. All these positive things, new technologies, new sources of energy, the end of the nuclear arms race, you know, the incredible change of politics in the last decade and possible changes in consciousness around the world. There's that side. And then there's Yugoslavia and hungry people and all of the things that make us think we've never learned anything. We think about war and we say, well, it's them. You know, if only those people would stop doing it. But we had the war in Kuwait that 90% of Americans supported so strongly, even though 250,000 Iraqis have died, many of them women and children. And we drive our cars and fly on airplanes in heat with oil. We say, well, maybe I'm not so sure about that war, but we still use the oil, don't we? Wonder, wonders, you know, who it is that creates the wars. This is from a book by a friend of mine, Richard Heckler a book called uh, something like The Spiritual Warrior. He's a teacher of meditation and Aikido and martial arts, and he came to train the special forces, the Army Green Beret, in Aikido, in body work, in therapy, and in meditation, to train them to be more conscious as warriors, and maybe to be a different kind took the best, the cream of the Army Special Forces for six months in this program, which included a one-month retreat for these guys here in Massachusetts, went out to the woods into this Army camp and set up a retreat, a one-month silent retreat for the Green Beret. <laughs> the guys who done, had done everything in their lives, you know, jumped out of low-flying aircraft in the dark and swam through icy seas, said that was nothing. <laughs> the meditation retreat was the hardest thing they had ever done in their life. You know, put me in a battle anytime. <laughs> it's easier to fight for one's principles than live up to them, yes? So here is his description of this retreat. I enter the room... The men have already been sitting for 20 minutes or more. This is the second week of the retreat. They sit there, automatic rifles at their side. There's a palpable presence. 
I settle quietly on my Zafu and my attention is drawn to one strong presence on my right, a large man, barrel chest, huge arms, is sitting. I see his T-shirt, 82nd Airborne Division, it says, with a big bomber. Below that it reads, death from above. (laughs) I blink, my mind reels. This is not a meditator's T-shirt, yet he looks like he's meditating. I have no mental file for what I see. (laughs) We go to a supermarket and we have the kind of food that not the emperor of China or the empress of Persia or the greatest kings of Europe had just 50 or 100 years ago. Unbelievable kiwis from Australia and, you know tropical things from Ecuador and um, all there for us. There are 10 million street children in Brazil, homeless kids, hungry. We have this computer revolution and incredible developments in information technology. And the world's spiritual books at our disposal. Every kind of education. The New York City Teacher of the Year last year, when he received his award, met with the mayor, the teacher of the Board of Education, and a large group of parents and castigated them for the sole murder of one million black and Latino children. He said, think of the things that are killing us as a nation. Drugs, brainless competition, recreational sex, the pornography of violence, gambling, alcohol, and the worst pornography of all, lives devoted to buying things, accumulation as a philosophy of life. All are addictions of dependent personalities, and that is what our current brand of schooling inevitably produces in the next generation. Very painful. Wonderful high-tech medicine here. And then a good friend of mine in the San Francisco Sangha, a nurse who works with crack babies, addicted infants, lots of them. We have this beautiful spiritual center and all the books in the library. And yet the places where this teaching came from, Burma, terrible situation in Burma. Sri Lanka, civil war. Thailand, they're cutting down the forest so there'll be no forest monasteries left soon. The monks are going out and ordaining trees with robes so they won't cut them down. So what do we do? How do we hold the 10,000 sorrows and the 10,000 joys? Well, maybe meditation will help. We'll make it better, we think. And then there's the great Tibetan teacher, Lama Yeshe, who died not many years ago. Wonderful master of meditation, inspiration for the start of 50 Buddhist centers around Europe and America and Australia. Wonderful man. Had a heart attack, was in the hospital, wrote a letter about how difficult it was. Unthinkably difficult. 40 days in intensive care. He said, by the end of it, my body was like I became the lord of a cemetery, my mind like that of an anti-god, 
my speech like the barking of an old mad dog. It was so painful, I never imagined how difficult it could be. Then he worked with it in his meditation, mind you, but it wasn't so easy. It's not like meditation is supposed to change life particularly. Outwardly and inwardly we look and there's joy and beauty and there's sorrow and the causes of it, greed, hatred, delusion in our own lives, in the lives of others. So we say, then what should we do? What kind of story to tell ourselves? What myth? The warrior, be strong in the face of it. The lover, the artist, embrace it, transform it. The devotee, the servant, like Gandhi. The great yogi, is that the answer? Here's Kabir, wonderful Indian poet, yogi. My friends, please tell me what I can do about this world I hold on to and keep spinning out. I gave up sewn clothes and wore a robe, but I noticed one day how well woven was its cloth. So I bought some burlap, but I still throw it elegantly over my left shoulder. I pulled back my sexual longings, and now I discover that I'm angry a lot. I gave up rage, and now I notice that I'm greedy all day. I worked hard at dissolving the greed, and now I'm proud of myself. <laughs> when the mind wants to break its link with the world, it still holds on to something, doesn't it? Kabir says, listen, my friend, there are very few that find the path, yet it is right here in front of us. Someone has to have the courage to face this contradictoriness of being alive in a human body on this earth. It takes a tremendous courage to do it, to find a still place in our heart that can hold all of these contradictions. And there isn't any simple solution. There is no answer. There is no path or formula that someone can give you to follow. Sure, there are recommendations, work with precepts, take care with your speech and action. But it doesn't help all that much, does it? There you are, kind of naked in New York City. What are you going to do? There's no one you can imitate, because no one's ever lived 1992 before, and there's never been anyone exactly like yourself. This is from the poet Rumi. He says... Don't trust means or techniques. Some people work and become wealthy. Others do the same and remain poor. Marriage fills one with energy. Another, it drains. Don't trust means. They change. A means flails about like a donkey's tail. Always add the gratitude clause to any sentence. If God wills, then go and do your best. There isn't some formula, no one you can imitate. Then what does this practice suggest for us? What it suggests is something radical and very simple. That is that we roll all the problems together 
and all the times, the past difficulties, the future together, that we roll all our concerns together and face them once and for all, for all time, past and future. You can take care of the whole past and future in only one place, just now, in the present moment. And if you actually live in the present moment, moment to moment in this timeless present, you take care of all of the past and all of the future. One who does so, who lives here, lives with a commitment to wakefulness and compassion, is called a bodhisattva, which is a word, bodhi means awakened, and sattva means being, a being who is committed to the path of awakening in the face of the contradictions of life, committed to awaken even if the sun should arise in the west, the bodhisattva has only one way. Even if the world is turned upside down, the way of the bodhisattva is to discover or bring compassion, to discover freedom, wakefulness, each moment, each day, in the face of this mystery. Now, in some Buddhist traditions, one takes bodhisattva vows as a way to begin practice. Vows that go things like this. Beings of all kinds are numberless, living beings. I vow to save them all. Difficulties are endless. I vow to overcome them all. The dharmas are uncountable. I vow to master them all. The Buddha's way is unattainable. I vow to attain it. Those kind of vows, right? <laughs> Small things. Now, it's impossible if you take those vows and think, well, a hundred thousand mahakalpas and the bird wearing away the mountain, remember they talk about, my God, I'm having trouble, you know, just living month to month. What am I going to do with kalpas and mahakalpas? If you put it in time, it doesn't make any sense. What it speaks to, again, is something greater than time, the time that we create out of our thoughts of past and future. And that which is timeless is what it speaks of. To become a bodhisattva, which you all are in your practice, is to discover or fulfill our true nature. What helps to understand this is to realize that the path of a bodhisattva is a direction, that the love or compassion of a being committed to awakening is to face in the direction of goodness and stay that way. Enlightenment is not a state. Zen Master Suzuki Roshi put it this way. He said, strictly speaking, there is no such thing as an enlightened person. A wonderful statement and very deep. Strictly speaking, there's no such thing as an enlightened person. There's only enlightened activity. That makes it easier, doesn't it? 
The idea of enlightened person is kind of an oxymoron. I'm an enlightened person. <laughs> you got a problem? <laughs> Strictly speaking, there is no such thing as an enlightened person. There is only enlightened activity. To do this, to roll everything together, all of the sorrows and all of the problems of past and future, and to, to stay with them, to solve them, to face them in the present, is to make every activity or every moment sacred. This is from Thomas Merton. He writes, as a writer, which was his art and his craft, he says, if you write for God, you will reach many men and women and bring them joy. If you write for others, men and women, you may make some money and you may give someone a little joy and make a little noise in the world for a short time. If you write for yourself, you can read what you yourself have written and after 10 minutes you'll be so disgusted you'll wish you were dead. <laughs> it's funny, there's some truth in it, isn't there? We've all tried it. To make one's activity sacred is to do it for that which is your deepest love, for that which you most deeply value, your work, your speech, your actions, the way you drive, the way you treat the people around you in your community, to make activity sacred. In your family, a Hasidic tale, if you never want to see the face of hell, when you come home from work every night, dance with your kitchen towel. And if you're worried about waking up your family, take off your shoes. It's from an old Hasidic rabbi. It's the sense of do what you need to do in this life. We all have a lot of things which are difficult to do. Do them and also don't forget to dance. You could say there are a thousand models for the Bodhisattva or no models at all. There's the Buddha who left the palace to live in the forest. There's Goenka and Ubakin who were teachers in this lineage. Ubakin was a Burmese man, a layman, who had a meditation center and trained the teachers or was the grand teacher of many of those who teach here. He was a government official. And when Burma won its freedom from England, at the same time India did, he became secretary of treasury and he was so successful then they made him secretary of internal revenue which was a cabinet department and that was so successful they made him secretary of transportation for the country by the time he was done he had four cabinet posts simultaneously and then he would go home in the evening and run his meditation center and teach people at the treasury and the internal revenue department 
he had people sit for an hour first in the morning and then recite the five precepts of refraining from killing and taking that which isn't given or stealing. Can you imagine that? The Secretary of Treasury in Washington? All right, first we'll sit for an hour. Okay? Then you guys at the IRS will recite the five precepts. Right? And then his disciple, Goenka in India, who's taught thousands of students, a multimillionaire businessman, who kept his businesses going to some extent and also taught for years, retreat after retreat, of the Dharma. Lived in the world and expressed the Dharma in his way. There are yogis in caves, there still are in Tibet and in India, who spend a lifetime of solitude doing nothing but compassion meditation for all beings. I'm really glad they're there. I think we need them. And then there are people like Gandhi or Martin Luther King who enact the role of the bodhisattva in the world of politics or service. Or Dorothy Day in the streets of New York or Rosa Parks, who I talked about the other night, who just wouldn't get off the bus. I have a friend who is the chief psychologist for Weight Watchers International. You know, a million members or something like that. And she started a project recently. She's a very beautiful woman and a longtime meditator called Dieters Feed the Hungry. She said she couldn't stand it one day meeting around the country with thousands of people who are trying not to eat and have too much food and seeing homeless and hungry. And so she started this project asking everyone who diets to take the food that they would eat or the money for that food and feed someone who's hungry. And it's just in a couple of years it started to spread, and now there are hundreds of chapters of Dieters Feed the Hungry. She's a wonderful bodhisattva. We each will have our own way and our own gift, sometimes through action, sometimes through silence. Zen master Ryokan never preached to anyone or reprimanded them. Once his brother asked Ryokan to visit his home and speak to his delinquent teenage son. This was in the 1700s in Japan, just so you know that things don't really change that much. <laughs> Ryokan came but did not say a word of admonition to the boy. He stayed overnight and prepared to leave the next morning. And as the wayward nephew was lacing up Ryokan's sandals, he felt a warm drop of water. Glancing up, he saw Ryokan looking down at him, his eyes full of tears. Ryokan then returned home, and his brother wrote that the nephew had changed very much for the better. A lot of times, it's that simple. It's just that moment when you're really there for another person to say, I love you, or help them in a moment when they're having difficulty. So many stories of that. My favorite bodhisattva in the Buddhist tradition is a guy named Vimla Kirti, who didn't want to be a monk because he thought it was too dualistic and would give people the wrong idea that you had to run away from the world in order to find compassion or awakening. So he stayed in the midst of life and he was prosperous and happy 
and taught many people. And then he realized there were places that people didn't have much understanding. So he made himself sick and entered the hospitals so that he could give teachings to those who worked there. He had a whole lot of children, so he could teach those people who had children about the Dharma of education. He went and intended bar for a while to teach the people there. He put himself in every circumstance and saw it as a place to express his life as a bodhisattva. What undertaking a spiritual path calls for in us is a very deep kind of respect and listening to our own song and our own gifts because no one else has been like you before. One of my favorite stories comes from a tribe in Africa. This particular tribe considers the birth date of a child to be not when they're born, nor even the day of conception, which is the birth date in some cultures. In this tribe, a child's birth date is counted from the day that child is a thought in its mother's mind. That's the day the child is born. I'm sure you've noticed how many things get born that way. And then what the mother does sensing that she'd like to have a child with this particular man, is then go out and sit under a tree in a forest or a field nearby and listen quietly, sit there, until she can hear the song of the child that wants to be born with her and this person, however long it takes. And when she hears it, then she sings it to herself, and goes back into the tribe and teaches it to the man who is to be her partner so that when they make love together, at some point, they sing that song to invite this child to be born. And then once she's pregnant, she sings it to the baby in her womb and she teaches it to the midwives so that when the child is born, comes out, the midwives and people around her, sing the song to this baby. And then as it grows up in the village, the villagers know the song. It's taught to them. So if the child falls or hurts itself, they pick him or her up and hold them and rock them and sing their song. Or at rites of passage, when the child is successful, you know, bar mitzvah or whatever they do in that village. They sing the song, marriage, they sing the song, all the way to the end of life, when this person is now old and ready to die. Friends gather around, hold their hands, and for the last time, sing their song. What a kind of respect and deep listening to listen to the song of one's child even before it's born, to sing that song to others. That very deep kind of listening is what we've been practicing this week. And that's really the spirit that allows us to awaken understanding and compassion. When I first practiced in Asia, 
And I studied Buddhist studies at Dartmouth College starting 1963. Read Buddhist books even before that. For the first 10 years of my practice or more, I practiced mostly with my mind. And in the monasteries, it was the same. I made a lot of effort and had strong concentration and insights came and lights and visions and all the kinds of stuff that you read about. You sit long enough and don't move and do a year-long retreat as I did and all of this stuff. Stuff starts to happen. Say, wow, I understand this. I see that. A lot of understanding. I thought that mattered a lot, and it was wonderful. But then I came back after all these years of training and study and so forth, started to live my life again as a lay person, got into a relationship, had a job, went to graduate school, and discovered that I was emotionally retarded. <laughs> Probably the best way to put it. Great deal of difficulty. I didn't even know what my feelings were, much less being close or intimate with somebody. Intimacy terror. I mean, really difficult. And all the old patterns, like old clothes, were just waiting for me to put back on again as soon as I got in a relationship or as soon as I went to work. You know what I mean? (laughs) If you don't, if it's your first retreat, you'll see. And I realized that I had to bring my practice down from my understanding to my heart. And I've done a lot of work, 10 years, 15 years of therapy, breath work, body work, a lot of metta meditation, a lot of compassion practice, a lot of work in learning to be with others, a lot of time in intimate relationships, initially quite unsuccessful, gradually learning. Basically learning the ways of the heart, learning to feel again, to reclaim my feelings, to listen to things that had been closed down, how to be with another person. Then I found I had to work my way down the chakras even further. You know, you hear about going up, I'm working my way down. (laughs) I realized that I had used my body. I could climb mountains and sit like a yogi for hours, you know, in India or wherever it was. And and it was fine. I've been healthy and... And there's a kind of grace in having health. But I realized that I had used it more than inhabited it. And I'm discovering that to really embody the Dharma means to be able to live it in one's body, with one's movements, with the way one walks and, and, and moves through space and cares for this physical body that we've been given. And so that's now a part of my practice, learning how to live in this human body. Very simple, coming down to be human. Wonderful poet, Antonio Machado. It is good knowing that glasses are to drink from. The bad thing is not to know what thirst is for. You say nothing is created anew. Don't worry about it. With the mud of the earth, make a cup from which your brother can drink. Moving from the ideals to the immediate this moment reality. Emily Dickinson, in two lines, puts it this way. 
until your first friend dies, you think ecstasy impersonal, but then discover that he or she was the cup from which we drank it, otherwise unknown. That it is through each unique person and each unique being that that compassion and wisdom and understanding that is that of the Buddha in us can be discovered. No place else, just in the moment. read you another story. One day when the sultan was in his palace in Damascus, a beautiful youth who was his favorite young man rushed into his presence, crying out in great agitation that he must fly at once to Baghdad and imploring leave to borrow his majesty's swiftest horse. The sultan asked why he was in such haste to go to Baghdad. Because, said the youth, as I passed through the gardens of the palace just now, death was standing there. And when he saw me, he stretched out his arms as if to threaten me, and I must lose no time in escaping from him. The young man was given leave to take the sultan's horse and fly. And when he was gone, the sultan went down indignantly into the garden and found death still there. How dare you make threatening gestures, at my favorite young man, he cried, and in my own garden. But death, astonished, answered, I assure your majesty, I did not threaten him. I only threw up my arms in surprise at seeing him here because I have a tryst with him tonight in Baghdad. Don Juan put it this way, He said, the trouble with you is you think you have time. And we really don't know in this life, in this mystery, how long or short we have. So then what matters? When we realize that, things become incredibly precious. This is why we sit, to remember that. There are two great forces in this world Two two of the greatest forces of humans. Those who are not afraid to kill. And they often end up conquering and running a lot of societies and territory. And those who are not afraid to die. And part of what our practice here is to discover that our heart can face death and sorrows, and all of life can embrace all of that, and that the heart is greater than all of them. That is the only thing that will allow you to live wisely in this life. That kind of fearlessness that comes from having faced yourself and faced your own death. Gandhi, one person, Enormous courage and commitment. During the partition of India, Nehru sent tens of thousands of Gurkha troops and soldiers to what was West Pakistan to try and quell the riots. 
and to East Pakistan, Bangladesh, went Gandhi, one man. But the spirit of his being and his heart was so great when he said, I will fast to the death before I will let myself stay in this nation and see the sorrow that you caused to one another. His love was so great and his commitment and his courage was so great, he was more successful than tens of thousands of soldiers. Let my first act every morning be this resolve, says Gandhi. I shall not fear anyone on earth. I shall fear only God. I shall not bear ill will toward anyone. I shall not submit to injustice from anyone. I shall conquer untruth by truth, and in resisting untruth, I shall withstand all sorrows and bring freedom to the world. Every morning. If you want to see the brave, says the Bhagavad Gita, look for those who can forgive. If you want to see the heroic, look for those who can love in return for hatred. This is Benjamin Franklin's epitaph. The body of B. Franklin printer, like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding, lies here, food for worms. But the work shall not be lost, for it will, as he believed, appear once more in a new and more elegant edition, revised and corrected by the author. Isn't that wonderful? This fearlessness that we learn, which is the fearlessness to be in the present with what is true, in the face of the truth. Now you have to be careful. Does this mean now I've got the way to do it? I'll be fearless. And that can just be another difficulty, can't it? What fearlessness means is not to be without fear, but to bring your heart and your body and your spirit to the moment, consciously, mindfully, moment after moment. It's that very humanness that transforms this world. St. Vincent de Paul, I tried this the other night and I found this quote. He says, it is only by feeling your love that the poor will forgive your gifts of bread. That's really what matters. Or Mother Teresa. We cannot do great things in this world. We can only do small things with great love. I remember driving with my teacher, Ajahn Chah. We went one year from the monastery, main monastery, to a little branch temple on the Cambodian border. And it was maybe 80 or 100 miles away on dirt roads. And we were driven by this man who was a wild driver, much like you find throughout the third world. You know what I mean? Passing buses on curves where you couldn't see anything. Ox carts, bicycles, you know, huge trucks laden with rice. And he's just driving as if he's on the freeway somewhere. And I'm terrified sitting there and, you know, 
trying to keep hold of myself and thinking, well, I'm going to die as a monk. This is how it is, you know. Just trying to be in that space and breathing and calming myself. (laughs) Then I look over, my teacher Ajahn Chah is sitting there, and I see him holding on and his knuckles are white. (laughs) We go through 80 miles of this. It was really, you know, all this... Finally, we get there, and Ajahn Chah turns to me, and he says, scary, wasn't it? (laughs) It was such a wonderful moment. It wasn't like it wasn't scary. I don't think he was afraid to die. I think he was really ready to die. It was just scary. (laughs) It just was what it was. Do you understand that? That's what really transforms us in the world when we are ourselves and when we bring our humanity to whatever we do. It is only by feeling your love that the poor will forgive your gifts of bread. The simplest things. There are a lot of ways to do it. It might be to go and protest the war, wherever the war is, or it might be to put on Mozart and promise never to turn on CNN, you know, and make your home a place of peace. It might be to give your love in politics or economics or education. Or it might be to go to a cave and do loving-kindness meditation for the rest of your life. It's finding your own gift in its season. Some years it might be one thing and some years it's another. Moment to moment, bringing that heart to the world. Ralph Waldo Emerson To laugh often and much, to win the respect of intelligent people and the affection of children, to earn the appreciation of honest criticism and endure the betrayal of false friends, to appreciate beauty and find the best in others, to leave the world a bit better, whether by a healthy child, a garden patch, a redeemed social condition, to know even one life has breathed easier because you have lived. This is to have succeeded as a human being. Joy is even more difficult to bring into this world than your sorrow. And yet you can, too, bring your blessings to bow to see that which is precious. One of my favorite books of recent years is a book entitled B-Ball, The Team That Never Lost, about a basketball team in San Francisco at the San Francisco Special Needs Center, written by the coach who'd been a high school basketball coach and always fantasized that he was going to coach for the Lakers or something like that, or the Celtics. But he came in wanting to have a team. They said, all right, you can coach here. And he said the first thing that happened is that there were only four players, one of whom was in a wheelchair. He thought, I'm not even going to have a team. And just as he was getting discouraged, this six-foot-one-inch black woman comes running out of the men's room saying, I want to play too, coach. And he said, all right, I've got a team here. He said it took him 45 minutes 
to get them all to line up in a line facing the same direction, right? This was like the opening gambit. So he had to begin to revise his ideas of what he was going to do for his team. And they started to practice, and they came. The guy in the wheelchair would roll under the basket and throw the ball, you know. And it was really difficult. But they kept coming because they loved it, and somehow he loved him. And after a while, they got so they started to challenge other teams, which was fun. Of course, teams would come. They'd play for a while, and they'd stop the game in the middle and put on some music and dance for a while, you know, and then start the game again. And depending who came, their team, sometimes they'd have five, six, eight, ten on a side. It didn't matter. Whoever wanted to play was on the team that day. And then as they started to play a few games, they got cheerleaders, you know, and uniforms and hot dogs. And they really had a great time, you know. He said it was the only basketball team, his was the only basketball team ever to score more than a million points. Because one of their guys got that little scoring thing and had just such a good time pressing it that by the end of the game, it was more than a million. One morning, he said, in one of their first games, he told the, the people on his team that they were going to have a game that afternoon. And one morning, he got up really early that day of the game to go out and get some milk and kind of do a little jog in the area where he lived near there. And he went by the gym, and there was this man on the team sitting out there at 6 in the morning just as sun was coming up. He said, what are you doing? And the coach said, well... I mean, the coach said, what are you doing? And the guy said, well, you told us that there's a game today, coach, and I don't have a good sense of time, and I really didn't want to miss it. So they don't know numbers, and they don't know time, and they don't know teams, and they have a wonderful time. In fact, they wrote to the People's Republic of China and challenged them to basketball. (laughs) And the People's Republic of China sent a team of developmentally disabled and handicapped people. It took them a year to train them to San Francisco to play against them. It's a wonderful book. The idea is not to win the game because you don't even know what the game is. (laughs) In the end, it's to enjoy the game, even in its sorrows, and to bring to it the gift of your heart by yourself, with good friends, with others, and in that to transform the world. And don't think, said Margaret Mead, that a small group of people does not have the power to transform this world. In fact, she said, it is the only thing that has ever done so. So we have a tremendous power within us, individually or with others, to bring transformation doesn't mean fixing things, but loving them so deeply, seeing the preciousness of life so deeply, that we gradually become more and more of ourself. And in it, people bask in that. You love being around people who are themselves in a deep way, who've learned to be free and joyful and to love deeply. And that's the gift we can bring in so many forms. It's our blessings. I want to read you a poem as a way to end. 
And then maybe we'll do a little chant. This is a poem from Rumi again, the great Persian mystic poet who wrote, I don't know what it was, 10,000 pages of poetry. He was kind of like Mozart, only he lived for a long time. He heard the poetry and his, his companion kept writing it down. They'd walk down the street or go in the market or go in the baths. And Rumi would just be kind of pouring poetry. Poetry would pour through him and his companion would write it down. Probably the greatest poet that ever lived on earth. If anyone asks you how the perfect satisfaction of all our sexual wanting will look, lift your face and say, like this? This is how to go back from the retreat, right? (laughs) When someone mentions the gracefulness of the night sky, climb up on the roof and dance and say, like this? If anyone wants to know what spirit is or what divine fragrance means, Lean your head towards him or her. Keep your face close there, like this. When someone quotes the old poetic image about clouds gradually uncovering the moon, slowly loosen knot by knot the strings of your robe, like this. (laughs) If anyone wonders how Jesus raised the dead, don't try to explain the miracle. Kiss them on the lips, like this. When someone asks, what does it mean to die for love? Point, you mean here? When someone asks, what there is to do on this earth? Light the candle in his hand like this. He uses love poetry to express that spirit. If anyone asks you how the perfect satisfaction of all our sexual wanting will look, lift your face and say, like this? What a line. (laughs) Probably the greatest thing that we can bring into the world, our hearts and our spirits, is the ability to bless one another or honor one another. to be able to bow with respect. When I was a monk, you know, as a young monk, part of the tradition is that you bow when you meet an elder. Well, that's all well and good. But when you're a new monk, that means anyone who had ordained even the day before you is your elder. So that you're going and bowing to everybody. And when I first started, you know, getting down on my hands and knees and bowing, sometimes I liked it if there was someone I respected. But, I mean, there were schnooks who, you know, ordained two days before me and were clearly less enlightened than I, you know. (laughs) And I had to get down on the ground and bow to them because they'd made it to the temple two days before me, you know. It's not a big thing in the West, you know, this bowing stuff. So it was a whole kind of education. And then we had to bow as we entered the hall, bow to the Buddha, down on your hands and knees, down to the floor three times, and bow as we left the Dharma hall, and bow before we ate, and bow after we ate, and bow when you entered your cottage, and bow when you entered the bathroom, when you leave, 
bow all the time. And at first it was really awkward and strange. Later on, I came to love it. It was so wonderful. I got to where I'd bow to anything, you know? (laughs) Truck comes by, bow to that, right? (laughs) Bow to the trees. It felt so good to bow. It does. It's just a wonderful, splendid thing. That's kind of the expression in form of the way of the bodhisattva that I've spoken about tonight. So I'd like us to do a chant together. A very simple chant. It's a way to end the evening. Evening's talk. The beginning of most all of the Buddhist sutras. We haven't done this chant yet, have we here? Namo? Oh yeah, we did it? Someone's saying yes and someone's saying no. Oh, New Year's Eve. Yes, we did it already. The beginning, I would like us to do that chant again. The, the beginning of all the Buddhist sutras that start with this word, Namo, and the blessings and the greetings in India. Um, I, I bow to the divine within you, Namaste. So again, as a way of ending this talk, I'd like us to chant that blessing nine times. And again, for yourself, each time you say it, starting the first time with yourself, then with others that you know or around you as you choose, or this place or the woods or the beings. And then extend your blessings further each time you chant it so you can feel it as if you were bowing to greater and greater dimensions of this world. Respects to oneself, this unique, never before encountered being on this earth. Nah.